You can always edit out anything you don't like. <laughs> like that? <laughs> like that. <laughs> Are your school days out of sight? When you took English, art, and math, what's your favorite Fahrenheit? How sour are the grapes of wrath? Do you need a challenger or disgusting Salinger? Do you love the written word? What happened to the mockingbird? Our show is just beginning, so find a place to sit. These questions will be on the test. It's time for sophomore lit. Hi. Hi, everybody. Welcome to yet another special Christmas edition of Sophomore Lit, uh, where we reread your 10th grade reading list. Although this time, my lovely wife, Marina, and I are reading a short story that neither of us had read before, um, but by an author of whom I believe both of us are extremely fond, uh, Willa Cather. And this is her The Burglar's Christmas, first published in December of 1896. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show again. I always enjoy being on the Christmas episode. Both of us, I know, are great fans of Willa Cather's My Antonia. And when we were looking around for a Christmas story to read this time, I, I gave you a list and you, and you chose the the Burglar's Christmas. Um, what what led you to that? That it was by Willa Cather. <laughs> this was published in 1896. This is the beginning of Cather's career. Before she actually published any of her major novels, she was a staff writer on a uh journal called The Home Monthly. This uh, story was actually published under a pseudonym, Elizabeth L. Seymour. You want to say something about that? or I don't know anything about that. <laughs> I just, I asked you this morning whether uh, this was an earlier or later work of hers. It does seem the work of a writer who's trying to work for a very popular audience. I mean, it doesn't surprise me when you read it that it has that flavor of a uh, you know, mid to late 19th century story that's going to be shared when people get the newspaper in the mail and read it by the fire or something like that. You know, it kind of feels like the Little House on the Prairie readings that they would do. Well, as I was reading it, it struck me as being very close to an O. Henry story. It's a sentimental story built around a plot twist. So it's a pretty short story. Um, it ends just as it's getting started, but... Uh, <laughs> What do you think about the length of the? It's interesting. So, I mean, at first read, it feels a little bit like a sentimental story that doesn't have a lot of depth or weight, right? Because it has a somewhat contrived happy ending to it. But I actually think there's a lot of complexity and richness that's going on there that really points forward to Cather's later work. Um and in particular, I saw at least three strong literary connections. So I, mean, I guess I can start with the first two um, and get to the other one later. But the first was the poem, um, Robert Browning's Child Roland to the Dark Tower came as alluded to. Um, he talks about the child Roland going to the tower as it, it's uh, as he's sort of thinking over um, his own path. And I noticed that the structure of Cather's essay or story was really about parallel to the Robert Browning poem. So in the Browning poem, um, Child Roland, who is the only speaker in the poem, talks about this quest where he feels like he's been a failure all his life, like he's been a like one of the band of knights that fail in their quest. 
Thus, I had so long suffered in this quest, heard failure prophesied so oft, been writ, so many times among the band to wit, the knights who to the dark tower's search addressed their steps, that just to fail as they seemed best. And that's the same theme that we see the uh, supposed thief follow as he's looking at his own life. Um, Roland says he's a sick man near to death whose friends have all abandoned him and that he's never been able to be successful. And then we also see the same kinds of words from Cather's main character who says he can't even remember his own name anymore, which is, I think, just fascinating. We could talk about, too. You know, the same way that in the Browning poem, at the end of the poem, the knight finally reaches the Dark Tower but we don't really know what's going to happen inside. There's this sudden rise of our character uh, who goes to a home that turns out to be his own mother's home. And it's even described in terms of the upper floors of the room are dark. So it, it literally looms like a dark tower before him. So that's the first literary connection. I mean, the second is obviously the prodigal son um, that, you know, he, he ends up being kind of like the prodigal son. So we switched from the Browning poem to the prodigal son. This is the story of this guy named as Crawford. At the beginning of the story, he's homeless. He's talking to another homeless person and he decides that it's Christmas Eve. He's completely out of luck. He's completely out of money. And he decides he's going to take the plunge and go uh, burgle a house. And and that's the way that he's going to get uh, food to eat that night. He, he does feel like a failure. He's saying to himself, I'm so degraded at this point, I might as well. It's that self-loathing that uh, allows him to go forward with something that he uh, knows to be wrong. And as you say, the, 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 the major twist of the story is that he ends up, the house he ends up burgling is owned by his parents who have moved to the city that Crawford is in in the years that Crawford had had has has been out wandering the world Crawford as a as a down on his luck homeless guy what's what's led him there is uh is a life of being well, you know, he was a reporter, which and when you said to me that Cather was a reporter, I thought, oh, there's a wry sense of humor that's creeping in there. Right. Because, um, you know, he says that he's been a failure at everything. And the thing that, you know, it, it, you kind of imagine someone who just never had the chance to be successful. But no, he says he works. He worked as a reporter um, and worked long hours doing it before turning to real estate. Um, I don't know if you wanted to read any of that paragraph. Sure. He had not found life easy since he had lived by his wits. He had come to know poverty at close quarters. He had known what it was to be gay with an empty pocket, to wear violets in his buttonhole when he had not breakfasted, and all the hateful shams of the poverty of idleness. He had been a reporter on a big metropolitan daily where men grind out their brains on paper until they have not one idea left and still grind on. He had worked in a real estate office where ignorant men were swindled. He had sung in a comic opera and played Harris in an Uncle Tom's Cabin Company and edited a Socialist Weekly. 
Yeah, I sort of saw a lot of humor in that. I actually laughed out loud when I read that part because I thought, you know, in the beginning of the story, we can't tell what it's, why he's a failure. And I kind of imagined him as somebody who, um, you know, maybe had worked in, I don't know, factory labor, labor or something, right? Or industrialized labor, that kind of picture you get sometimes in stories uh, like in Theodore Dreiser, right? Um, of someone who's just not been ever able to make it. But he turns over in his mind multiple times for us a general sense that he's been a failure, that no matter what he tries, he puts to he puts to his hand to he's a complete failure at it. And then it slowly comes out of the course of the story, you know, yeah, um, that he he failed, but his failure was like being a reporter, being in real estate. It wasn't just that he failed at being a reporter, he failed at being in real estate because he follows up that section by saying these were all ways in which I was like a moral failure, right? Um, where he felt like he had failed morally by doing these activities, which I think is very humorous given that she was actually a reporter herself. Crawford comes from comfortable middle to upper class backgrounds and has set off in the world to uh, make something of himself in what he considers to be a bohemian lifestyle. The old life with all of its bitterness and useless antagonism and flimsy sophistries, its brief delights that were always tinged with the fear and distrust and unfaith that whole miserable, futile, swindled world of bohemia seemed immeasurably distant and far away. Uh, so it's this is this is a guy who like went to art school. <laughs> but I think she's kind of making fun of him. You know, she's making fun of him for this. I think the character, the character's funny in a tragic way, I guess, at first, because he has a good, you know, end come to him um, for Christmas. But the the thing about him is he's just like r talking about himself so negatively that you think he's depressed, you know, he has no sense of himself anymore. He's like lost everything. He's hungry. But then there's a point where he does something virtuous, but he thinks of it as a failure. So he's walking down the street and this woman is carrying a bunch of packages at Christmas time and drops one. And when she does, he picks it up and he hands it back to her trying to be helpful. And afterwards, he characterizes it as a failure, uh, which is it's funny, right? Because we know it isn't a failure. He says, the young man turned angrily upon himself. It's being told in third person. The package must have contained something of value. Why had he not kept it? Was this the sort of thief he would make? He ground his teeth together. Uh, there's nothing more maddening than having naturally, morally consented to a crime and then lack the nerve forced to carry it out. So here's a guy who's basically internalized the sense that his father is disappointed with him. That comes out through the story as well. And that his dad would be disappointed in who he is. And now he's even saying, I'm not even a good thief. I think that Cather is writing to an audience that might be more sympathetic to a prodigal son, as, as you say. He does come from a moneyed, educated class and she could have written a story about perhaps someone from the lower from lower classes who had ended up a day laborer who who had completely gone down on his luck but this is a story about uh abandoning your home to to seek worldly treasures or worldly pleasures and coming back at at the end of all that 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. The Roland theme continues as he goes into the house and and the prodigal son one really takes over. And so I can talk about two ways where I saw that happen. The first is he goes into this house, he goes upstairs, sneaks up past, you know, any servants who might be there. And it's a wealthy house that he's broken into. He stuffs his pocket with jewels. And then he comes across an item that is essentially a chalice that he a a silver cup that he drank from as a child. And there's so many layers to the way that Catherine presents that. I mean, it's sort of like the cup of the Holy Grail, right? Because there's some Christian illusions throughout the work. It's the knight who's finally going to be successful in his quest. It's so it is kind of like Roland, although in the Roland poem, we don't know whether he'll be successful or not at the end. Um, And it's also the, you know, coming home of the prodigal son. Um, And so I think all those layers kind of work. But he thinks that it's a terrible moment when it actually turns out to be a great moment for him because he's he says, oh, it's worse than I thought. (laughs) Not only did I fall so low as to steal, but I have stolen from my own family. Yeah, and just as in the biblical story of the prodigal son, uh, where the uh, prodigal son comes home and tells his father that he's unworthy of forgiveness and says he comes home hoping to find some sort of work in his father's house and his father takes him back, Crawford also protests to his mother and to his father, who we we hear from off screen sort of, uh, that they shouldn't forgive him. He, the, that he actually was there to rob them and that he is just a petty thief and he's not worthy of forgiveness. And yeah. And, and it is just like the story, you know, in the, um, in the parable, the, uh, prodigal son in Luke's gospel, which is where that parable comes from. He's was a, t- a tender of the swine actually while he was away because he spent his father's fortune. And then he comes home with nothing. He's been eating the food of the pigs, which, um, you know, he, he then says he's going to be willing to be a servant if he'll and be rec- welcome back. And there's a great line here in the Cather piece where, he says to his mom, no, no, you don't understand how bad it is. You don't understand how terribly I've acted. And she actually takes on the role of the prodigal father, because as some commentators on the Luke story say, it's really the father who's prodigal, right? It's the, He's prodigal in his generosity. He's prodigal in his love in that original story. Yeah, in the biblical account. And when he says how terrible he's been and confesses everything to his mother, she says, Hush, my boy, those are ugly words. How could you rob your own house? How could you take what is your own? They're all yours, my son, as holy yours as my great love. You can't doubt that will, do you? So, um, She's the she's like the prodigal father who like embraces his son who, you know, falls into his arms. But it's really interesting. The line I just read is also very much like in the prodigal son story when the elder brother says he's upset that he's never had a party thrown for him and he's been the good boy, you know, all his life. And uh, the father says, everything I have is yours. Uh, and so it, it's interesting. She kind of takes the words for both of the the so-called good son and the prodigal son or the spend uh, thrift son. And the concept is that, you know, everything I've given you, it, it already belongs to you. So why ever doubt 
that you have my love or that you, you have, it's not about the material things. It's about the fact you can never doubt that the parental love is there. She goes beyond to say you can't steal what was already yours. She also uh, associates herself with her son by saying, when I was young, I had exactly the same impulses as you. The, she says, she said, I, I foretold that this would happen when you were born. Uh, there's this line where she says, um, I have lived all your life before you. You have never had an impulse that I have not known. You have never touched a brink that my feet have not trod. This is your birthday night. 24 years ago, I foresaw all this. Oh, wait, he was born his birthday night. He was born on Christmas Eve. So that was the third theme. So (laughs) let's make that a nice segue. That was the theme is that he's he's like the Christ child in a funny way. And when I read, I was also very struck by and actually marked in the text the same thing you just read, John. And all I could think was, oh, that's like what the incarnation of Christ, right? Because the idea is that. Jesus knows everything that human beings experience. So I think a kind of robust understanding of Jesus's birth isn't just that there's that the divine became a cute child, but that that child goes on to become someone who knows what it's like to be a human being, knows what it's like to be hungry and thirsty and made fun of and um, to, you know, got sick, was able to had to to deal with all the human things that people who are human have to deal with. And that there's literally nothing that we have experienced that, that God hasn't experienced through Jesus. So, um, so I just think that the fact that, that I think that really gets telegraphed by the fact that we know that it's his birthday and it's also Christmas Eve. So he's, he's shares something with the Christ child. And, um, and I think, you know, that seems very, Christmassy to me, the idea that the person who seems like the thief, who seems like the one who should be judged, the the person who seems like the one that's not privileged is actually the one that is really beloved. Well, you know, you your words make me think of yet another uh, of Jesus's parables, the parable of uh, the Good Samaritan, because uh, the Good Samaritan is often seen as being a story about how you have to be good to people, but it was actually directed specifically at an audience who were not predisposed to like Samaritans and to say there's a kind of a, and, and, and what I mean here is this story um, in this story, the mother is able to forgive her child because she understands those longings for the things of the world. And I feel like Cather's audience here is perhaps an audience who might be predisposed to say, well, crime doesn't deserve forgiveness or people are, you know, there's no story behind what the people on the street are going through and trying to say, look, you know, if these are people like you, these are people that are. Yeah, I thought that too. And, you know, um, something that struck me at the beginning of the story was I was sort of bothered by the tone of the story, honestly, because we first only get our main character's view of himself. And that main character's view of himself is I'm poor. I deserve it. I failed. I've tried to succeed. I've worked really hard, but it didn't work out. So it must be that everything I touch turns to failure. And he literally thinks that way about himself. He thinks that if I try it, I fail at it. And that is the common story that's often told about people who are impoverished or people who are homeless or people who have addictions, that somehow they 
deserve what they get because they should have chosen otherwise. And he has internalized that voice so effectively, actually, that I was worried (laughs) that it was Willa Cather's view of it, too, for the first page or two. And then when you start to see him saying, well, oh, my God, I'm even a failure as a thief or, you know, his name is not Crawford. He says he doesn't know what his name is. He says, so Crawford, that's the latest of the names I took on. I thought that's a beautiful, poignant moment that he doesn't really know himself. He doesn't really know his own value. He doesn't he no longer knows his own name. And in a way, he gets restored to himself when his mother embraces him. And then the mother intercedes for him, right? And says, just kind of a little Virgin Mary like, <laughs> and says, Oh, listen, I'm going to intercede for you with your dad. And I would really like you. Uh, he says to her father, his father, that he's so afraid of disappointing, like, Oh, please let, let him come back home. And the father says, Okay. Although, you know, he's a little reluctant it's at points to do so. So I think Catherine, I think you're right, John, that he's internalized this really unhelpful view of homelessness and poverty. And he has a sense of himself restored by this unconditional love and forgiveness and, and just knowing his worth, knowing his worth in the eyes of his parents and having a home to come home to and having the party, you know, that is Christmas Eve and having that, feast or celebration on his behalf. I mean, I think it's a helpful thing for us to think about at Christmas. You know, I think it's important if you celebrate it um, religiously or secularly, you know, a lot of Christmas is presented as all the shiny and sparkly things, beautiful gifts under the tree, you know, our house is decorated um, all over the place for Christmas. We have lights on our house. We have a Christmas tree up. What we see is that it really is the biblical idea of light shining in darkness and that the light is more important than the darkness, but not that we shouldn't attend to the darkness. And Catherine puts our eye on the fact that there are people experiencing darkness and that even our society's judgments can contribute to the way in which they experience that sense of um, thirst or hunger or foreboding and that we need to to be the people who bring the light and um, bring the welcome and not in a judgmental way um, or a holier than that way, but just in a sense that says we're all beloved. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm speechless. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. <laughs>